0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. all these things i will give you if you will fall down and worship me then jesus said to him be gone satan for it is written you shall worship the lord your god and him only shall you serve then the devil left him and behold angels came and were ministering to him and this is the word of the lord
1: let's pray jesus said to pray like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. I would encourage you to have your, if you have your Bibles, uh, to open to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paper one should be in the pew in front of you. I also have it open to James one. James one. This will be part two. Uh, what I titled last week: Untethered Desires. Untethered Desires. If you missed last week's sermon, I'd encourage you to go listen to it. This one will make a lot more sense. Um, we don't usually do two-part sermons. That's not uh, typical, but we do usually preach through books of the Bible, as you guys know. Um, so we're just continuing on in Matthew, but we're going to kind of, we're going to be, you know, really preached uh, last week, Matthew chapter 4, the verses that we just read, i uh, really did more of an exposition of that last week. Uh, This week is kind of an expansion of that exposition from last week. Um, So we're going to be also in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer that I just prayed, and we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 as well, as they relate back to Matthew chapter 4 in the passage that we just read. So with that said... Let me read for you James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, really, last week and this week, what we're working through is the progression or the relationship between desires, temptation, sin, and repentance. Desires, temptation, sin, and repentance. How do those four, like a puzzle, how do those four things fit together? So where I want to start, and I don't, want to, I don't want to stay here too long, but I want to review just very briefly last week and then launch into the, the sermon really for today. So just a little bit of review. Temptation is, and just said this again last week, something we all struggle with. Temptation is not just something that weak people struggle with. The strongest person, this side of eternity... We'll struggle with temptation, something we all deal with. Temptation also is something that always involves something pleasing or desireful, something that is delightful to the eyes, or delightful to your plans, or delightful to your emotions, or so on. It's, if it wasn't, then it wouldn't be a temptation. There would be nothing for you to have. You would just walk away. It wouldn't be that big of a deal. Who cares? It always involves something pleasing or desireful. Temptation is also, most often, though not only, something good that's been twisted. It would even challenge you to think through, like, an evil desire you have. There's usually, like, desires usually come in a hierarchy, meaning you have desires that are rooted in other desires that are rooted in Deeper desires. And usually, if you chase even an evil desire down, there's probably going to be a good desire down in there at the beginning that has just been twisted somewhere in the process. Even homosexuality and the desire there, majority of the time, is rooted in a desire for intimacy, a desire to be close to someone. That's a good desire that then it gets twisted as it grows, as it conceives and gives birth. It gets twisted. So temptation is is those things. Next, and just as we're reviewing here, Jesus' desires were always tethered to God's words. Were always tethered, tightened, tied, double-knotted, triple-knotted, anchored to God's words. I drew a a distinction between being tethered to God's words versus just dropping truth bombs like a cheap Hobby Lobby sign. Jesus had God's words written on his heart and his desires tethered to them in such a strong fashion that it guided his desires and it aided his fleeing of temptation. I want to push you on something. It doesn't matter how many sticky notes, Hobby Lobby signs, or worship songs containing words of God you have playing around your house. If your desires are not actually tethered to God's words, then those sticky notes, those post-it notes, those index cards, those Hobby Lobby signs or die cut out, sticky things, or your worship songs will make no difference. I've noticed this scenario frequently. A person will have all these things written around them, reminding themselves of what God has said. But interestingly enough, I've also found with many of those people that they hardly read their Bibles, let alone actually study it. They hardly give themselves to faithful, diligent sermon studying and they usually miss the glaring points of the scriptures for their emotional flavor of the moment. Why? Because these external actions have been mistaken for true desire tethering like that of Jesus in this passage. And I think... We're all tempted to be that kind of Christian, where the external looks nice and shiny, the bowl's nice and clean on the outside. I think the other tempt or the reason part part of why that's also tempting is that we intake just enough of God's word that it spoils our appetite for dinner. What I mean is you've got just enough of God's word kind of floating around you that you feel good and safe with God's word and life, but your heart's not actually tethered to the words that are around you. So no shame if you've got sticky notes. Enjoy your sticky notes. Just make sure you don't stop there. Jesus's desires were tethered to God's word so much so that he could flee the temptation of sustenance in something other than God, that he could flee the temptation to know God's will instead of living by faith, and that he could flee the temptation of getting something the cheap way. All right, so those are our quick review. Looking backwards, I want to move forwards. I want to shift, shift into drive. So imagine with me this scenario. I was just tempted. You were just tempted. A thought rolled across your mind or an image come across your eyes. Temptations can come in different forms, fashions, and modes. And in that moment, you desired something that you shouldn't have. You can insert your own example here. Now, in the very next thought, a second later, just the very next thought, you flee to something that is righteous or at the very least to all moral. Maybe you fled to asking God for deliverance. God, please deliver me from this temptation. Maybe you fled to fixing your mind upon something that is true, good, and beautiful, right. Or maybe you fled simply to work on the next task. The golden question for today is, did you sin in that moment? Did you sin in that moment? And subsequently, do you need to repent in that moment? I want you to think about it right now. How many of us, when we are tempted, in the very next thought, we turn to righteousness, but we walk away with a sense of guilt, shame, burden. If we are guilty of a sin, even though we fled temptation, so imagine, if say you are guilty of a sin in that moment, even though you fled temptation... How much more would you need to repent each and every day? How many more times must you ask God for forgiveness throughout the day? What I think, practically here, because we don't know how to respond appropriately to desires, temptation, and sin. And we, don't a, we don't have a careful theology here. We oftentimes never overcome sin that we so desperately want to and need to because we don't know how to respond in moments like this. So what I want to do first, that's their situation and the golden question. What I want to do now is I want to define a couple terms for us before I get to the first point of the sermon. I want to define a couple items for us, a couple terms. A sin... Versus sin. Or maybe to put it a different way. A sin versus your sin nature. A sin that you've committed versus your sin nature. I want to define both of those so that you know as as I talk through this what I'm talking about. First, sin nature. Every Human being is born with a sin nature, and that sin nature continues with us even once we have been saved, okay? I'm not gonna get into the transmission of sin nature and how all that happens. Every person is born with a sin nature, and that sin nature continues with us. The London Baptist Confession of Faith in Article six, verse 5, or 6.5 says this. The corruption of nature during this life, does remain in those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. All right, so let me explain what that means very briefly. You have those who are regenerated, or in other words, those who have been redeemed and saved... Their sin nature that they were born with has been, through Christ, pardoned and mortified. Or, in other words, forgiven and dead, put to death. However, that sin nature is truly and properly sin. Not a sin, but it is sin. And it's been forgiven, and it's dead, Yet the dead sin nature, the old man as we refer to it sometimes, continues with us. But not as a slave master, but more like a nagging cough. That's the best example that came to my mind because I've had a nagging cough for like three weeks. Romans 7.24 says, this wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of of death. This is Paul in Romans 7 recognizing that the, the, this uh, body of death is still with him. Though, if you read Paul in other places like Romans 6, verse 6 through 8, this is right before he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? He says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him, meaning Jesus, in order that the body of sin, meaning what's inside of us, this body of sin, the sin nature, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Right, so catch, catch what Paul's saying there. The old self is dead. We have been regenerated unto new life. But in 7 and in chapter 6, he talks about this, it's, it's still enduring. It's just the, our relationship to the old man is different now. We were enslaved to it. Now it's a voluntary enslavement, essentially. That you can float in and out of. But he has no no, um, uh, permanent grasp over us anymore. That's done. Now we're slaves to righteousness, Paul will say in another passage. So the old man is dead. We have been regenerated unto new life. Yet that sin nature, Paul talks about it, it, is truly and properly sin. All right. That's sin nature. Next, a sin, or a sin. Every human being, when his desires are enticed by evil, conceive and gives birth to sin. Meaning, a sin is brought into existence. This sin requires repentance. So think of it this way, when we think about a sin, as a specific way in which you have lived not according or not by the law of God. His standard. The law of Christ, if you will. Now that's whether a sin of commission or omission. So something that you did... That you shouldn't have or something that you didn't do that you should have done. Revelation 3.19 says, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus reproves us and disciplines us when we sin, and the call is to be zealous and do what is righteous and repent. All right, so I'm going to bank on you understanding what I mean by us sin versus sin nature. Both are sin, but the way we respond to each one is going to be different. And that's what I hope you land with today. How we deal with each one is different. So keep those in the back of your mind. With that said, point 1 Sins need forgiveness. Temptation needs deliverance. Sins need forgiveness. Temptation needs deliverance. Let me read for you what I prayed earlier. Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there two more pages later. Well, two more chapters later. Depends on how small your font is. Verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then verse 12 and 13 and 14 for our particular interest this morning. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's a whole lot said there. But what I primarily want you to notice here in this passage is in 12 and 13. Jesus says, as we're praying to the Father, forgive us our debts. Forgive us of our trespasses. Okay? Forgive us of our debts, what we owe. Forgive us of our sins, our our trespasses. However, when it comes to temptation, he does not say the same thing. He says, Deliver us from our temptation, from evil temptation. In his prayer here, Jesus treats the two things differently. He leads us to respond to the two things differently. You have sin, you have temptations. We respond to each one differently. When we sin, we need to pray for forgiveness. We should walk in repentance. When we are tempted, we need to pray to be led or delivered away from the temptation. That's how Jesus teaches us to treat the two things Now, don't you think, hang with me here, don't you think that Jesus understands that when we are tempted, that we have a sin nature? I mean, clearly Jesus knows enough theology at this point to understand that those whom he's telling to pray this way have a sin nature. They have something they were born with that's truly and thoroughly evil. Yet, if we are simply tempted and we escape the temptation, Jesus does not instruct us here to repent. I think that's fascinating. I mean, the prayer example that Jesus leaves for us to pray, he treats these things and tells us to pray about them differently. All right, so let's play this out with an example. Not that any of you have ever struggled with this temptation, Maybe it's just me. Your child has sinned against you and your family. You're tempted to pop him in the mouth out of anger and revenge. Okay? Again, I I know none of you are ever tempted with doing that. The next moment, after the thought comes in, you say, no. Like Doing that out of anger and revenge would be sinful. It's wrong. And so you move on to something else that is righteous and good. Do you repent in that moment? The golden question. I'm arguing that Jesus would not instruct you to repent there, but rather to be thankful for deliverance. That's Jesus' instruction how you would respond to that moment. So then the question is, well, then when do I repent? When does that happen? When does that need to happen? Which leads me to my second point. Desires untethered lead to sin. Desires untethered lead to sin. For that, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you we're going to be here for a minute. Go to James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We're really not going to deal with that last statement at all, when it's uh, fully grown brings forth death. Hopefully you understand what that means. We're just gonna deal with that first part of, of, of 15 and beginning, of, sorry, 14 through the beginning part of 15. So our desires, if we're talking about desires and sin nature, I want to connect those two things for you for a moment. Our desires are compromised always. Our desires are always tainted with the sin nature, even when the desire is for something good. We walk with that lurking man who is still dead. We already talked about this in in the opening today. Our sin nature, though we are not slaves to it, and though the old man is dead, he's still lurking. Kind of like the old woman in Rusty's house. Right? Right? My house is older, we just put the old people live there on a picture up on the wall for you to, for us to be reminded. It's a little eerie too. Rusty's lives in his well in the middle of his house. You can see her hands on the wall, right, like this. All right, sorry. All right, now watch the progression here in James. Watch the progression. Your desires, though are not clearly sin at this point. Like James is not calling your desires sinful yet. That comes halfway through verse 15. Okay? So you have your desires, though tainted by the sin nature. But you have your desires, no, there is no a uh, sin yet. Your desires then are lured and enticed. The implication here is that the desire has taken the bait. It has put the worm in its mouth. Even you non fishermen hopefully understand that. The person has been enticed, their desires have been enticed. This means that they've grabbed a hold of the enticement, they've snatched it and put it in their hands. To put that in practical terms, they've begun to act on it. Now, that acting on that enticement and desire combo could be uh, a second or third thought, like how can I make this happen or how good would it be, right? Or it could be a physical action. You swinged the hand and popped him in the mouth out of anger and revenge, It's moved from a desire to an action or to a plan, whether physical or mental. Now we have conception. Now we have conception. As in, you have egg fertilization now. There's a pregnancy now. Desires present, and you decided to get in bed with enticement And now you've made a baby. His first name is Sin, and his last name is your last name. The sin didn't happen back at the original desire, the sin happened at conception. Between you and enticement, when your desire was not tethered to God's word. Yes, those desires are tainted by the sin nature, but that's something different. We're gonna talk about that, but that's something different. We already said that the sin nature is thoroughly and truly sin, properly sin, but the way you deal with it is different. Here we're talking about the conception and birth of a sin, the boy child of you, led by untethered desires. And enticement, the offspring, is the bastard child whose name is sin. Now, that's one progression. That's the progression that James is talking about. The other progression would look something like this. A temptation comes across your radar, and for that second, your desire is present, Remember, it wouldn't be a temptation if there wasn't something delightful to the eyes. But instead of being lured, instead of grabbing hold of the enticement, whether physically or mentally, instead of letting your desires lead you to get in bed with enticement, you run out of the room, you take a cold shower, you flee the temptation. At this point, you have not committed a sin. The desire had the bait held out before it, but the act of enticement was cut off. The allurement was cut off. There's no conception. There's no fertilized egg, no viable offspring, even with an ultrasound, and therefore no birth to sin. Which also means the latter part of the verse doesn't happen either, which is, "and sin when it's fully grown leads to death." Is you've cut it off way back here, before it even became sin, you have no debt to be paid. You have no trespass that needs forgiven. You have been delivered from the temptation. You and I should say, praise God. Here's how you should respond in that situation. If you have fled, so temptation present, desire, but the the allurement is cut off. You flee it. Here's how you should respond. You're not guilty of a sin. However, remember your old man is dead. Though as a new man in Christ, your old man's still lurking, right? We got that. You just aren't a slave to him anymore, He was killed when he went into the grave with Jesus. He was dealt with, the old man, was dealt with along with your justification. More on that as we go. Romans 6.6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's what Paul's saying. The old man died with Jesus. You should treat this moment, the moment you fled, though the desire was there, you should treat this moment like you treat justification. Let me flesh that out. The old man died at your justification. Finished. He has been mortified and you have been forgiven. Why would you keep repenting of that? You don't have to. You shouldn't. Just like you don't have to be justified over and over and over and over again. You don't have to keep killing the old man over and over and over again. He's dead. The only time he even looks alive is is when you pick up the strings and start making him alive. You don't repent over and over and over again to get justified, do you? I mean, there's lots of denominations that believe that. Nazarenes believe that. A lot of Methodists believe that. Catholics. Now we do repent as it relates to our sanctification. That's a different conversation for a different day. But here we're talking about justification. You don't get justified over and over and over again. That was once and for all, finished, final, done. He dead. You should thank God that the old man, the sin nature, is in the grave. So, in short, how should you respond if you have indeed fled? You should thank God that the old man is dead and that the sin nature is in the grave. You should lament the corruption of your nature, certainly. You should lament that it is truly and properly sin. But then you should thank Jesus for delivering you from evil. You should thank Jesus for helping you flee the temptation. You should thank Jesus, again, that the old man is dead. Though he lurks, he is dead. He's not your slave master any longer. I have been justified with Christ. He died with Jesus. He was crucified when Christ was crucified. But you ought not confess a sin... Until you commit one. Now, here's what I want to do next. I want to basically say the same thing I just said, <laughs> but in a different way, right? Both of these examples are from Wilson, from, from Doug Wilson, really helpful. One's an outline, one's an illustration. I'm we'll gonna give you those. There's also a helpful article, if you wanna read it, by Kevin DeYoung. Imagine that. They, they both agree on this. <laughs> Sorry, if you don't know what I mean, d- don't worry. Th- those, two got, those two got in a feud recently over something kind of silly. But they agree on this. All right, so three kinds of mortification and a garden. Three kinds of mortification and a garden. That's essentially the next 2 subpoints. Three kinds of mortification. The second point is a garden. First kind of mortification is the death of the old man. Okay? Death of the old man. Romans 6, 6 through 8. We've already read this. Let me read it again. We know that our old self was crucified with him. What's it mean to be crucified? It's put to death. In verse 8, He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is truly and thoroughly mortification. The old man is dead. He's been put to death. He didn't just die on his own. He was forcefully put in the grave by the power of Christ at the cross with all of the sovereign strength of heaven. He was put to death. He was thoroughly mortified. He's dead. Listen, in many ways, that's what we represent when we do baptism. That's why we do it by immersion. The old man is dead. Have you ever heard the phrase, you're beating a dead horse? Anybody? Now, if you're a horse lover, I'm sorry, I'm going to push this example. Or push this metaphor Here's what I think happens for many of us. You're tempted, but you fled. You're delivered. Instead of walking into the room and lamenting the corruption of the old man, but praising God that he's dead, instead of doing that, you walk into the room and start beating yourself up with guilt and shame. You walk into the other room and start beating a dead horse. See the problem. Instead of spending your time in the next room lamenting the corruption of nature as sin, but celebrating liberation from the old man, you waste your time wallowing in guilt that's already been paid for. Listen, you and I only have so much time, so much bandwidth, so much emotions, so much thought life. And if you spend all of that time wallowing in guilt that's already been paid for, then you'll have little to no time worshiping that it's dead and been paid for. That's super practical. No wonder we struggle to overcome sin oftentimes. Instead of worshiping, you're wallowing under a burden that Jesus already took. We should stop wallowing and start worshiping in the next room. In other words, underneath this first part of mortification is that the rule and reign of sin is no longer over you. When we say the old man is dead, but he's still lurking, that's what I mean. Second kind of mortification is you stumbled and significant sin has grown up in your life. Stumbled and significant sin has grown up in your life. Colossians 3, 5 would be an example of this. Paul says to the Colossians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Quote, mortify your members which are on the earth, end quote. That's the idea. Notice that these are not little sins. Sins. These are full on expressions of rebellion. Passion, right? The idea of shameful passion which leads to sexual excesses. Just as an example, the the picture here in Colossians is your desires have led you to make a baby with enticement. Maybe you should get this tattoo. Make babies, not sins. There you go. That's someone's next tattoo. (laughs) I'm getting that one. That'll be my first tattoo. The evil desire, the evil desire here is the full-on manifestation of the sin that dwells in the old man, right? That's... It's the manifestation, that sin nature has made a baby with enticement, and here's its manifestation, right? So that's the, I've stumbled into, significant sin has grown up in my life. Paul is calling for a decisive action. He's saying to put that to death. In many ways, he's saying, cut it off back here. Put it to death. Mortify it. The third mortification is daily mortification. Daily mortification. Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's Romans 8.13. This is daily living. Daily. Daily. Daily plucking the little weeds out. The verb here is one that refers to an action that is continuous and ongoing. Okay? This is an expectation in the Christian's life that there will be little weeds that grow up each and every day. You should pluck them. You will... Not, let me remind you, you will not walk away from this task until we see Jesus' face. Okay? All right, that's three kinds of mortification, now a garden. I'm just going to read for you here make a couple comments. Wilson says this, picture a weed patch. Picture a weed patch. Not cultivated at all, kind of like Chris's farm when he bought it a year ago. When the first mortification happens... God plows the weed patch under and makes it a garden. It's now a garden. It's no longer a weed patch. Its identity has been changed. The old status is dead. I hope that doesn't roll over you because that's most fundamental to our status our status we were a weed patch that's been plowed under and made into a garden the second mortification is what happens when the garden is untended for a week (laughs) and you come back to find weeds in it that are up to your thigh uproot them pull them out that is the second kind of mortification The third kind is what any good gardener will tell you about. Get out there every morning and pull up the weeds that are the size of your thumbnail. They will always be there. Get out, pull them up. Don't let their roots get deep. Don't let them have just another day. Don't pet them. Don't just say, "Ah, I'll deal with that, that weed tomorrow. Hold up now. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't let time. If it's truly a weed, get rid of it now. Its roots will only grow with time. Its seeds will only spread. Deal with it now. And my last point for today is this. Why is this important? I think mean, there's many reasons. I'm just going to give you three Three quick ones. Why is this important? In Kevin DeYoung's article, he brings up this point. So that we don't give up the fight of faith too quickly. So we don't give up the fight of faith too quickly. Why fight for faith? Listen to me. Here's the kind of the point via a question. Why fight for faith when in the temptation... Even having turned away immediately, you've already crossed the line. You've already failed. Why fight for faith when in the temptation, even having turned away immediately and fled, you've already crossed the line? Think about that. Why in the moment of temptation should you fight hard to believe the right thing and walk away if you're already guilty of a sin? I think many of us practically just give up the fight for faith right there because we've not thought through this carefully. Instead, if in, the temp- if in the moment of temptation you say, you know what, I could get out of here without another stain of sin, without another hurt in my own life, the life of others, the relationship I have with the Lord. I can walk into the other room and celebrate God's deliverance. What does that do to one's faith? Huh. It increases hope. It increases faith. Second, the point of temptation is to draw out any impurity still lurking in your desires. To draw out the places where our desires are tethered to the old man still and not to God's word. God deliberately allows and plans temptations for his people. I don't want to get into the theological, does God tempt his people and that's conversation for another time. But God deliberately allows the temptation that that permeates our lives often, that pervades in our lives often. Listen, its arrival, the arrival of temptation, hear me, hear me clearly, church, does not mean that God's blessings have left you. Jesus was tempted. Does that mean God's blessings had left Jesus? No. It doesn't mean his blessings have left you. It doesn't mean that his love for you is gone. It doesn't mean he's turned his face in disgust. It doesn't doesn't mean those things. However, God allows these desires, or allows these temptations to, to come and sift our desires and Purify our desires and reveal things about us. Next, and finally, why is this important? It will aid in your overcoming sin when you see the joy. It will aid in your overcoming sin when you see the joy of the dead and the live man meaning the old man now dead and you're now alive to Christ here's, here's, what I, here's what I mean by that if you've committed a sin then you should repent all the way and we, we've talked about that agnosium here and we'll continue till Jesus comes because that's a big part of every day of our lives but if you have fled the temptation if you have walked away if you've been delivered then you need not to walk around with the guilt the guilt was paid for at your justification you've been set free listen here here's the picture When you're tempted to sin and you flee, here's what that whole picture should paint for you. The fact that you were able to flee, the fact that you were delivered means that the old man is dead and the new man is alive. That's the picture being painted for you every time that that happens. Every time you flee a temptation, you flee, you're delivered. It is one more opportunity, one more picture, one more reminder that the old man's dead. He no longer reigns over you. You were able to say no and walk away. And it's also a reminder That you're now a new man in Christ. One that's alive. Because it was the alive one who was able to say no. It was the one that's new and in Christ who said no, who fled by the grace of God. So you should mourn the fact that the dead man still lurks, but you should be joyful. That he is dead and the new man is alive. You must turn in gratitude and worship to the Lord for the truth of his word and feast your desires there. Certainly, our Savior did that. See, our sins need forgiveness. And when we are tempted, we need deliverance. And God is faithful to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Father, we all face temptations every single day, and we indeed all commit a sin each and every day. Those sins that we commit must be truly and thoroughly repented of, trusting in your grace and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. And Father, our nature is still truly and properly sin. And we should lament when it shows itself. We should be sorrowful that it is still there. And we should, as Paul said, who shall deliver me from this? We should longingly look forward to the day when your Son appears for our eyes to see. And faith shall give way to sight. And the old man will be no more, no longer lurking in the corner of our hearts. Father, give us the faith to to live that out and and to celebrate when we have been delivered from a temptation. When we have fled to what is true, good, and beautiful, right, brings glory to you. Help us to not wallow underneath a burden that was taken by Jesus 2,000 years ago, but help us to worship you for the fact that the old man is dead and we are new men and women in Christ. Father, I ask all this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.